You might think you haven't gotten to where you want to get in life because things haven't gone your way. You might think that you haven't had as many lucky breaks as someone else. You're thinking about it wrong, if that's the case. Because until you appreciate the value of hard fought and won experiences, until you appreciate the need to work and live in the trenches and what that really means, you probably won't progress more than you have to this date. Hi, I'm Eric, and I, I want to tell you four stories. Four stories from my life to illustrate what it means to be in the trenches and how, if you embrace this mentality, how it can create an absolute shift in the trajectory of your life. And I'm going to take you through four stories in my life, from my childhood to where I am today, from the age of 10 to 44, from when I had a completely full head of hair to when I have now this shaved head. <laughs> Um, and I hope that from there you'll uh, pick up a few gems that you can apply to, to your own life. So we go back in time to 1985, also the date that Stranger Things have set in, if you've seen that on Netflix. Um, so 1985, and uh, I'm 10 years old, and it's um, school. school um, I went to a school called St. Isaac Jogues um, in Illinois in the U.S., in Chicago. And uh, there's a, a charity event going on at the school. And so they pass out all these charity flyers to all the classrooms. And it's essentially a, um, a charity contest where the kids are all going to sell chocolate bars. And there's different prizes that you can get, uh, depending on how many chocolate bars you sell. The little magazines get passed out with the prizes that you know, all the kids can win. I immediately go to the back of the booklet to look at, well, what can you get in the top prize category. And there, right before my eyes, is this amazing BMX bicycle. I had a bicycle already, um, but, you know, we grew up in, um, in uh, my, my parents didn't have a lot of money, you know, growing up. So I, I, I had you know, nice things from my parents, but not always the coolest things that the other kids had. And I certainly didn't have, you know, a top-end BMX bicycle. I had my trusty Schwinn bicycle at the time, which I loved. It was actually called a Schwinn Stingray. I vividly remember it. I had this long banana seat. <laughs> Wouldn't look cool today, but it was all right back then. But anyways, I wanted this BMX bicycle. I set my eyes on that and I thought, I need to get this. And I looked up and I remember to the top left corner of that page in the magazine, and it said that you had to sell 20 boxes of what was called World's Finest Chocolate. I, I still think that the, the brand exists act, actually. World's Finest Chocolate, you had to sell 20 boxes. 20 didn't seem like many. What I didn't realize is that there was 30 chocolate bars per box. So I had to sell 600 chocolate bars. And they were $1.50 each. I had to sell $900 worth of chocolate bars as a 10-year-old. And I had one month to do it. Um, now remember, I don't, you know, I can't do this full time. You know, I'm in school. I'm 10, but I was absolutely determined to get that bicycle. And so, what I decided to do was to stand outside of this grocery chain. Um, I don't think the chain exists anymore. Uh, it was called Dominic's at the time, and I stood outside of Dominic's, this grocery store, um, from it was from four o'clock to eight o'clock every night, Monday through Friday. I would rode, rode there on my bicycle with the chocolate bars for the day, and I stood outside the door and I said, world's finest chocolate, $1.50, to every single person that went in and out. I think after, you know, after a while, the sales weren't great in the beginning, but I think after a while, you know, doing, doing this over a four-week period, people are doing their grocery shops 
it's the olden days, so people aren't getting their food delivered. Remember, everyone's going to the grocery store. So I think um, after a while, people started to feel sorry for me. And so I, suddenly the chocolate bar sales started to ramp up and, and I started selling quite a few boxes, box after box after box. And I was getting very, very close to um, the end there and um, uh, getting close to those, those, those 20 boxes. And I remember riding home one night. And, and then I also, by the way, I also <clears throat> sold uh, chocolate bars eight hours a day, Saturday and Sunday. So four hours a day, every, every uh, Monday through Friday, um, and then eight hours a day, Saturday and Sunday. I would ride back home at the end of the night with the chocolate bars that were unsold. And one night in particular, I was riding home and um, in Chicago, <clears throat> where I grew up, um, you know, the, the weather can it, can, it can be crazy. So we can have these incredibly hot summers and then at the same time, uh, the winters can be brutally cold. Um, I'm also half Norwegian, so I can totally relate to uh, brutally cold uh, winters as well. Um, but it can also rain, and when it rains, it rains hard. And I remember I was riding home uh, with my bicycle that, that day or that evening, and these, these boxes, um, when, when you started to sell uh, a box of chocolates, you broke the box in half and it had like this handle in the middle. And so I was riding home with the unsold chocolate bars, one hand on the steering wheel, you know, holding the box and it starts to pour rain. And so what happens? <laughs> the box starts filling up with water. So I'm terrified riding as fast as I can to get home, uh, worried about the chocolate bars. And then suddenly as I'm going across the street, the box of the, uh, the bottom of the box just splits open and all these chocolate bars just spill out onto the street. And I jump off my bike and as I go to pick up the, the chocolate bars, I remember this car coming to a screeching halt, like literally right in front of me. I hadn't seen it. Um, could have been lights out right there. And all I remember is like looking up and um, seeing, you know, the pelts of rain through the, um, the, the headlights of the car and then seeing a pair of you know, trousers and, and legs come up to me and, and, and a man saying, you know, can I help you? Are you okay? And, uh, and I just, you know, he helped me pick up the, the bars and, um, and I used my jacket as a bit of a cradle on the handlebars and I continued to, to pedal home and I got home and I was completely distraught, dumped all the bars onto the floor and my mom and dad looked at them, uh, had a word with each other. I was in tears because I thought there's never a, you know, a way I'm going to get to uh, the 20 boxes now. And then they said to me um, that they would buy uh, that box of chocolate bars. We didn't have a lot of money, so for them to buy that bo box of chocolate bars was, was a big deal. And that, that gave me the hope to, 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 to keep going, and, and, um, and I just kept that eye on the prize. And eventually I got there by putting in the hard work, the relentless sales effort, day after day, no matter the weather, world's finest chocolate, $1.50, would not give up. Why wouldn't I give up? Because I had my eye on the prize. And the first thing that I want to tell you about you know, being in the trenches is just that power of having your eye on the prize and how it will help you get stuck into whatever you're doing and really go for it and, and, and you know, not, 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 not give up on that dream. Um, the, the second thing I want to tell you about is... Um, Goes, so th this, this story goes back to university. So I'm sitting in, in class at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. We have a visiting professor from Stanford University, 
To be honest, I only took the class because I thought, well, here's my chance to be taught from someone from Stanford. I'll never get that opportunity. So I took the class, and frankly, I wasn't even paying attention as I sat into the in the class one day. But then I heard the professor say, if anybody in this room were to get a job at the company about to profile next, I'll fall out of my chair. Now, I've always been competitive, and that, that did it for me. So I perked up, I listened, and the company that he profiled was McKinsey & Company. And he talked about it as this amazing place to not only you know, work, but to get a fantastic business education and how it could literally be a door opener into a myriad of um, other you know, job opportunities later, later in your career. And so I became absolutely determined to figure out how could I get my way into McKinsey. And the first thing I did was talk to that professor, learned more about the company there. Um, this next thing I did was I asked my family if they knew anybody or knew anybody who might know somebody um, at some of the top MBA programs in and around Chicago. And sure enough, through our network, I ended up being connected with the director of admissions for the University of Chicago, which is a top MBA program. And I spoke to the woman, uh, woman who's director of admissions, and she put me in touch with a guy who led the management consulting club kind of a funny name for a club, um, but uh, Management Consulting Club at the University of Chicago, which is essentially a club that was set up to help people get into top strategy consulting firms you know, like McKinsey, for example. And I spoke to this guy and uh, basically uh, he agreed to let me participate in their club and basically practice the interview style that McKinsey used um, to screen all their candidates, which is a pretty grueling case interview style. And so I did it, I must have done between, I don't know, 20 and 30 practice case interviews as an undergraduate um, with these graduate students at the University of Chicago, driving up from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign up to the University of Chicago in a weekend after weekend to practice. Um, the other thing I did was I ended up uh, joining the finance club uh, down at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, because I needed to get something more extracurricular on my resume. And as uh, in my position on the finance club, I had the opportunity to create a field trip for the group. And so I contacted McKinsey to create a field trip to go and, and visit them up in, in Chicago. And through that process, I ended up meeting McKinsey's head recruiter. And when we showed up on that day for the field trip, of course, I introduced myself. And then later, I was able to send my resume to that recruiter and I had that personal relationship already established, together with the power of all the other relationships that I had assembled through the various graduate students that I had done the practice case interviewing with. And sure enough, um, 22 uh, analyst roles were offered that year by McKinsey and Company to over 2,000 applicants. 20 of the positions went to kids from Ivy League schools, only two, including me, were from kids who didn't go to Ivy League schools, and I got in. I got that job, and it was a real game-changer um, uh, you know, moment for me. But it all came down to you know, being in the trenches once again and doing the hard work, but through a slightly different lens this time, through the power of relationships. So that's the key takeaway I, I, I want you to think about here, is how can you, through your relationships, connect yourself to the right expertise to either prepare for that next experience or help get your foot in the door for that next experience. Okay, so first, first story was about keeping your eyes on the prize 
and having that fuel you even through your low moments. Second story was about the power of relationships to help you connect your way into the right expertise to get where you want to be going. Um, the third story I'd like to share with you is how I completely transitioned from a world of management consulting with absolutely no tech background into joining Skype in its infancy. We are about 30 or so people in the London office and helping blitz scale that company. We grew from 30 people to 500 and during that period of time we had an exit to eBay for $4 billion. Now, how did that happen for someone who had no tech background? Well, it happened through just absolute relentless persistence. And I first came across Skype and I thought I was using the technology and I thought this is going to be huge. This is going back to 2005 now. So this is like 15 years ago, even further actually, it's about 2004. And I sent in an application um, and you know, the application um, was rejected. And they said that they didn't need somebody with a business background at the time. And so I sat back down, I waited a little bit longer and, and I wrote an application again. And I sent that separate, second application in and I, and I said, I, well, I think maybe now that the company's grown a little bit more, maybe now you could use someone with a business background and my sort of expertise. Um, could I please have a shot of coming in to interview? And I was finally given the chance to, to come in after chasing them a second time around and just, you know, relentlessly pursuing them. And on my way out from that interview process where I was finally invited in, the recruiter came to me and said, I can't believe you wrote, you know, your application on, on Christmas day. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she showed me the date of my cover letter with my you know, resume that I had set in, sent in. And sure enough, it said on there, uh, December you know, 25th, um, 2004, it was at the time. And I was so determined to get that job that I hadn't even realized that I was writing that application on, on Christmas Day. And that relentless persistence, that relentless chasing them to kind of get in that door and even give me the chance to interview, that's another example of you know, a hard fought and won experience of being in the trenches to get what it is that you want, what you think you need. Um, so a uh, key message there is, you know, again, relentless persistence, never give up. Um, that's, that's how uh, you, know, you can get some of the things that, that, that you really want and that you think you deserve. The last story I want to tell you is um, about the chain of Mexican restaurants that I built in the UK called Trilango. Once again, um, I had gone from management consulting to tech with no tech background. I had no experience whatsoever building a quick service restaurant chain. I mean, who's ever born with that experience, right? Nobody. <laughs> Um, but I was determined to, to figure out you know, the way to do that and, and to get that started as well. Uh, I was missing Mexican, Mexican food, frankly, having grown up in Chicago. At, at this time, I'm, I'm in London now. And, um, and that, that started by you know, me and my business partner. Uh, we, we just had, we, we did whatever it took. And we, we worked on all positions in the restaurant, uh, in the restaurant ourselves to get to to get the chain where it needed to be. So let me give you an example. Uh, when it came to buying the meat for the restaurant, we would wake up uh, three days a week at 4 a.m. to get to the meat market and you know, buy the, the meat that we needed and uh, go to the fruit and veg market and you know, buy the produce that we needed to cook and prepare everything that was required to serve food that day. 
We didn't have to do that on our own, but we insisted you know, on doing it that way. We also took turns working through every position in the restaurant. We weren't great at it at all. And there was lots of people right from day one who were much better at doing it. But again, by being in there and working every single position, we had a much better perspective on what was required to build the restaurant chain and, um, and make it succeed. And ultimately, you know, Chilango through its highs and lows became an award-winning chain of Mexican restaurants in the UK in a very short space of time. Um, one of the critical things that I recognized along that journey though was that it's one thing to start a company as a founder and it's another to scale one as a CEO. As a founder, you can get away with being a jack of all trades, much as I was, as I was just talking about, and you're literally a master of none. But as a company grows, you need to transition. You need to be better, become better at coaching others, working through others, and helping them to deliver the results rather than you yourself delivering every single um, result. You know, getting the team to win more games. And that required me to dig deep and confront a lot of you know, deficiencies and realize that what had gotten me to where I was at that point wasn't going to be what I needed to get you know, to, to the next level. I voiced these concerns with my coach. He said, well, you should set your, 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 your sights in the CEO of the Year Award, which I thought was ridiculous. Um, but sure enough, that type of you know, massive goal was what I needed to prompt you know, massive action. And I ended up you know, interviewing uh, so many different CEOs to understand what drove their success, did 360s with you know, my team and board to under uncover my blind spots and where I could improve. And that all culminated in that CEO of the year recognition. But only because I recognized once again that what had gotten me there wasn't going to you know, get, me, get me further. You know, what had gotten me here wasn't going to get me there. And really worked on that and confronted it and you know, wasn't afraid to shy away from it. So in summary, what I'm trying to tell you is that if you really want to get to that next level in life, if you really want to break through your barriers and reach your full potential, then you have to embrace the concept of being in the trenches. You have to embrace the concept of you know, acquiring all of your experience in that hard-fought, hard-won way. And those are four examples of ways I've done it by keeping my eye on the prize, recognizing the power of relationships, being relentlessly persistent and never giving up, and all the while recognizing your own deficiencies and realizing what got you to where you are today is probably not what you need to get to where you want to go. And so therefore, you have some things to work on and you need to identify those things. So I hope you found that um, helpful. If you are interested in uh, picking up some more high-performance insights, becoming a better leader, building a better company, or simply becoming all that you're capable of becoming, please head over to my website at ericpartaker.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter.